Maybe we can start with what is the Dorian principle? So Dorian is the Greek adverb that means freely. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 8, freely you've received, freely give. Or as ESV says, you receive without paying, give without pay. And then immediately after that, Jesus goes on to say, a worker is worthy of his food. So it's a book about how ministry ought to be supported, but not by exchanging the gospel for money, as so often happens. People want to charge for biblical counseling. I was at a conference a few weeks ago where, you know, the presentations that were gospel oriented, they want to charge you $14.99 to watch the live stream. There's just uh, all kinds of examples of people exchanging the gospel for money, as opposed to having it funded by co-laborers rather than customers. Now, the connection to open source is, if you think about the way copyright is used by Christian ministries, it's often used to secure funding. And in addition to that, uh, even if it's not used to secure funding, it's used in a way that places an obligation on the one who receives the message right? To say, you can't distribute this, or you can only modify it in these ways, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so, it places obligation on the here rather than truly being offered freely. So, the implication is that if this principle is correct, if if ministry ought to be offered freely and not given with reciprocity, expecting something in return, then it ought to be offered with a free license, provided that someone is conscious enough to think about licensing. Yeah, I mean, it seems basically what open source is. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So it doesn't necessarily have to do with the process of development and other things that open source frequently involves. But given that some ministry comes in the form of software, either accountability software, prayer apps, or Bible study software, if you're going to offer these things under a free license, might as well be open source in the fullest sense. This applies to so many other things, basically all content. Right. And that was kind of a big moment for me. Well, when I first got involved in open source, thought that was really cool. And then I discovered that people were applying free licenses to content also and realizing this was just a much broader issue. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's about content in general. Maybe we can go through like, why do you think Christianity becomes so opposite of this, I guess? So it is worth pointing out that, yeah, I'm not claiming that the church has gotten this wrong for so long. And I'm now, you know, (laughs) showing everyone what the Bible really said. I do think the church relatively followed this for a long time. There were a period of distraction. Uh, The whole Reformation was primarily started over in the sale of indulgences, right? And so, you know, uh, Johann Tetzel, I forget what the exact jingle he would sing was but you know every time a coin in the coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs something like that this catalyzed the largest change in western culture (laughs) so there have been times when things have gone astray with this but i think primarily for our own time it's just happened the past few hundred years with the advent of the modern publishing industry so how do you define the modern publishing industry i i don't know. I guess a lot of people would put a lot of emphasis on the Gutenberg press, things like that. But the way I think about it is uh, the more things have advanced, the more the physical product of a book and the content have been easily divorced, right? So it used to be when you were selling a book, you were primarily just selling this physical resource. You know, it wasn't necessarily the content, the gospel that you were selling. It was this physical item that had a limited supply. Now, when you offer a a book, 
a lot of times you'll sell, you know, a Kindle version separate. And it's obvious that it's the content you're charging for, not the paper. The paper now is very cheap. It's the content that's expensive, whereas you used to be, you know, the other way around. And so it's becoming more and more clear that what's being sold is the content. And as the publishing industry has gone that way, the church has just sort of blindly followed, you know, not questioning sufficiently whether or not this is going against the biblical ethic, because there was never such a need to define the biblical ethic well before. Things like the sale of indulgences, that's kind of in your face. It's obvious something's wrong with this. And, and there wasn't a need to, you know, define exactly what was wrong with it, right? Or to define the nuances of where is the line between peddling the word and not peddling the word. And now we have more of a need for that. And I think that's what this work was born out of. If you think of all the councils of the church and things, why did Nicaea happen? Well, there was finally a need to define, you know, in what sense <laughs> is uh, Jesus the Son of God. There was like an assumption or that was just part of the culture. This is what we believe. But then some people believe differently. And then that's when you have to kind of say, oh, this is actually what we believe more explicitly. Right. Once there's more serious violations of the biblical pattern or the biblical teaching, that's when you need to define things more concretely. And that's what I'm trying to provide. What would you say to whenever I tell people I'm doing open source, they're like, how do you make money? They'll just say that it's not viable or we have to do it this way where I charge for something. Why would someone give back without? Uh, sure. Well, first of all, like you already know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> wherever there's a demand for something, you know, there's money for it. So the idea that someone can't make money while offering freely licensed content is misguided. But as far as the church goes, I mean, the church already has a way of gathering funds, and that's the week-to-week -week voluntary contribution of the saints. Yeah, I'm certainly not saying that the worker isn't worthy of his wages, that ministers shouldn't be well provided for. It's just, once again, that should be coming from co-laborers, not customers. And yeah, and there's more creative things we can do too, things like Patreon or Kickstarter, where people can provide the minister or the content creator or the Christian software developer with funds so that he's able to do this work of ministry without having to charge the recipients of ministry, you know, in some reciprocal fashion. How would you define co-labor versus customer? Yeah, so that's a, that's a very good question. One way to think about it is obligation, right? So who is that person obligated to? One who gives to the minister out of an, a felt obligation directly to him is very different than one who gives out a felt obligation to God. So, for example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, he likens the whole act of funding ministers to how the priests receive their money and goods in general. The Lord said of the priests that he was their inheritance. And what that meant was that they received the tithes and the offerings and the sacrifices. Now, we all know that when people were bringing the sacrifices, they weren't sacrificing to the priests, right? They were sacrificing to God. And so that, that makes all the difference in the world, right? It's the difference between idolatry and right religion. Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Samuel, they took the sacrifices directly rather than waiting for them to be offered to God. And so that would be a good example of an old violation of this principle where they were considering the people directly obligated to them as opposed to being obligated to God who the felt obligation is to. Is it to the minister or is it to God? And then via God, you know, indirectly to the minister. It's whether or not the obligation is immediate or mediated.
How would you interpret this as someone that isn't Christian? So, yeah, I've thought a lot about that. And most recently, I was thinking about it in the context of employee contribution matching. So, for those who don't know, I'm both a, an engineer and a pastor. So, you know, I'm kind of handling this from both ends, <laughs> you know, deciding as the employee, do I go through this program? And as the pastor, do I set this up so that other, you know, employees can give to the church this way? And, and so, this is hard because, you know, is my employer like a real co-labor, you know, a lot of the things they stand for are quite contrary to what the church stands for. And, you know, in what sense could we receive that? Well, the dichotomy I set up in the book is between reciprocity and co-labor, right? So, first of all, this is obviously not reciprocity, right? It's not that they're giving in exchange for something else. Something else that kind of helped me think through this too was uh, family worship, so, you know, a long tradition in the church, you know, prior to yeah. the past century was for families to worship God together every day. And this is one of the distinctives of my church. My family does worship God every day together. And as a Baptist, I don't believe my children are necessarily regenerate. I don't believe my children necessarily have status as a Christian, you know, they're not baptized. And yet, I think it is fine for them to worship God with me, Right. Even though the younger ones who don't believe rightly may not yet be offering right worship to God, right? I still think that this is a good thing for them to do. That kind of opened the door to understanding how a non-Christian could give in a way that would still be considered right co-labor. So, I'm not sure if that's the best way of thinking about, about it, but that's where my thoughts have gone recently. But there are a lot of texts in the Old Testament that would give you reason for pause about that. You know, for example, Abraham refused money from the king of Sodom. There's actually just a lot of instances of the people of God refusing funding from outside entities. Now, I would say that's largely in line with this principle. They're rejecting reciprocity. However, it's possible too that they're saying this isn't right co-labor because you're not one of us. But I, I don't know. Anyway, this is one of the more finer points that I haven't worked out. Where can we go with this? Sure. Well, Maybe I could just read through the chapter title. So, kind of what I go through in this book is I start off in the first chapter with what Christ said about this. You know, that verse I mentioned in the beginning, Matthew 10, 8 through 10, where he said, receive without paying, give without pay. And then I have a lot of chapters on Paul's theology. You know, Paul, there were some important topics like the Lord's Supper, where he only wrote half a chapter on, but ministry um, fundraising was something he wrote on constantly. Hmm. And then I talk about false teachers also. You know, a lot of people imagine it as a Venn diagram where they think that, you know, you've got these greedy teachers and you've got these false teachers and there's some overlap between the two, but you could be a greedy teacher without being a false teacher and you could be a false teacher without being a greedy teacher. And I think picture the Bible paints as they are one and the same. Basically, this principle is supposed to be the means by which we detect, you know, whether or not someone is sharing the true gospel. When they're preaching the gospel, but then they're doing it in a greedy way, the greediness is not the gospel, so they're still being a false teacher? So, the Bible seems to, from my reading of it, it, it seems to picture a false teacher as always having, well, necessarily he does always have some ulterior motive, right? If he's, if he's not sharing the truth, it is for some ulterior motive. And that can be kind of summarized as greed, right? Uh, and for his own gain, and the way the Bible most frequently pictures it says, you know, only doing this in exchange for money. Money is kind of just a stand-in for any kind of personal gain, but money really is the prototypical kind. 
as it is now, this principle isn't firmly understood and held. You know, it can't function that way as this discerning factor to know whether or not, you know, a teacher is teaching truth, but it could be if more Christians began to embrace this. There are other things that I go through just relevant things in the New Testament. I go through the early history of the church. There are documents like the Didache written in the first century and other things, other extra biblical writings in the early several centuries where people very clearly, even quoting some of the verses I've been mentioning, it's clear that someone cannot teach for money or else they're a false teacher. Yeah. And then after that, I get into just, you know, what does this practically mean for us? What does this mean for church ministry. And then the last two chapters are about copyright. And, you know, it's funny because that, that was kind of the agenda of the book the whole time. I feel I feel a little deceptive because, you know, most Christians who read this, I don't think they have any idea as they're reading it that that's going to be the big application in the end is copyright. But really, that was my main goal in writing it. Yeah, I've had thoughts on copyright ever since college when I got involved in open source and and began growing discontent with the way ministries were using copyright for the sake of gain. Yeah, just kind of had that on my mind as I was reading the Bible and began to see some of the relevant texts and was able to think of them in that grid of how it might apply to copyright. I began realizing that this was more than just a personal preference I had. This was actually what the Bible was saying about obligation, about you know ministering freely. Yeah, and there was a real, a real solid application to draw here, not just a wishy-washy, you know, this might be the wiser way to go. Can you talk through how that applies to like Bibles and songs. I don't think most people, whether you're Christian or not, think about the translations and the copyright. Yeah, so copyright runs deep in Bible version publication. It's a shame how deep it runs, but it goes all the way to the manuscripts themselves. So there is court precedence that says that a mechanically reproduced copy of a public domain work can't be copyrighted. But still, it is the case that museums and other places that own physical manuscripts of the Bible, you know, the, those manuscripts from which we create the versions that we have, they assert copyright and the institutions that digitize them, whether or not they agree with that assertion, go ahead and comply with their requests and don't publish them on the web just so that they can keep working with those institutions. So, a lot of these manuscripts are not accessible to the public. They're only accessible to someone, you know, who's a part of one of these organizations are willing to pay. Now, I'm not saying that, yeah, you can't trust what the Bible says because it's all hidden by some Illuminati cabal or anything like that. The scholarship is more open than that, but it's not as open as it ought to be. So, this goes all the way down to the manuscripts itself. Then from the manuscripts, you have what are called critical editions, where people take the manuscripts and they look at variants, you know, maybe someone spells one word differently and things Mm -hmm. like that. And so, which one do you go with? Well, there's a lot of different things to consider. How many manuscripts, which manuscripts do you value more, which ones seem to be older, things like that. And you put it all together and then you write down a critical edition, which is like, this is the the Greek or the Hebrew text that we're going to go with. And so then people copyright the critical text. And whether or not that's something that's creative enough to be copyrightable, there once again, there's court precedent about these kinds of things, but it's not clear to me. If an arbitrary case were to go before a court, which way it would go? It's probably worth pointing out. I'm not a lawyer. This is just me speculating. (laughs) Anyway, so then you have the critical editions being copyrighted. And then beyond that, someone translates one of the critical editions. And now you have a modern Bible translation or a version. And these are also copyrighted. And there are some versions that a lot of people think are public domain that are not public domain. For example, the King James Version 
not public domain. Really? No. Yeah. So it's under the eternal copyright of the crown. So the crown eternally owns the copyright to the King James Version. Now, they don't enforce it outside of the UK, but in theory, they could because of international copyright law. So it's been administered by a couple of different organizations. I think the current one is Cambridge. But if you're in the UK and you want to publish, you know, you want to print KJV Bibles, you actually have to get permission from Cambridge, I believe. Wow. Especially if it's like the Bible itself, it does seem like it goes against the whole thing. (laughs) Yeah. Wouldn't everyone expect that? Like, I feel like if you were learning about Christianity or non-Christian, be like, why wouldn't the Christians care about this more but it seems like it's just always been that way which is that's so sad once again it's very easy to justify these things if, if everyone else is doing the same thing oh well, you know this is an important work we need to make sure it stays funded this is the way you keep it funded so yeah i have i have some sympathies yeah. given that people they haven't seen a lot of other models i'm hoping that you know this book get some readership and then maybe I'll have less sympathy after people have had a chance to consider these ideas. But as it is, people haven't really considered there's a serious alternative to all this. I hope they do. So you also asked about music. Yeah, music is another thing that's very odd. There's this organization called the CCLI, right? Oh, I forget what that stands for. I think it's Christian Copyright Licensing Incorporated, something like that. Anyway, most churches pay some yearly fee to CCLI in order to display worship music. So either streaming or, you know, printing it out, things like that. But what's interesting about all this is that U.S. copyright law also already has provision for religious entities that in the course of a worship service, they can display or perform copyrighted works without violating copyright law. So it's not clear to me what exactly the CCLI is providing. Is it for the streaming? Does that count as being part of the worship service? Uh, I guess that's you know, kind of debatable. Is it for printing? Well, I mean, that's kind of part of displaying. It's not clear to me. Once again, I'm not a lawyer, but I I don't know what value CCLI is really providing other than, you know, trying to make sure that the artists, et cetera, get funded. But they all have churches. Hopefully those churches recognize that this is a ministry they provide and would want to support that ministry as opposed to trying to get money from every other church who benefits from it. Right. I guess the question is like, I don't know how much money they're getting from that and how much is it actually going to the artists versus the organization. And then like if their music gets popular, they're probably having like concerts or something. Right. And the CCLI, like it provides so little, you know, it doesn't give you the right to rearrange the tunes or anything. And if you think of Creative Commons, you know, hopefully some of the listeners are familiar with Creative Commons, but it's kind of like still giving you a a non-derivative license. It's very locked down. And once again, I'd love to see the church change in this area. And this is also true for for hymns. A lot of hymnals have been written within the time span of copyright law. So, um, you know, they're still under copyright. And a lot of times they will, you know, have very small modifications of the original lyrics of of the original tune so that uh, now you've got a new copyrighted work. And even though that song is hundreds and hundreds of years old, (laughs) it's still considered copyrighted. And I don't know of this personally, but I heard this from a lawyer friend. There was a case of uh, some very old public domain music, you know, just classical music. And someone had copied it and, you know, was distributing it. And there were typos, you know, of where some of the notes were set. And so the original republisher of this work that they had copied from claimed that those typos, those accidents were creative 
editions. And so their work oh was not actually the public domain work, but but one that was then copyrightable and tried to enforce copyright on that. So yeah, it's it's crazy what people will do. Ugh. Why do I want to think about any of this? It's like, <laughs> not that we shouldn't be thinking about it. It just limits like people's ability to express themselves. And maybe one way of doing that is to modify songs or the text. Right. It limits people's ability to do that. It also provides a chilling factor for where things are legal, but people don't know, you know, whether or not it's okay. Well, then on top of that, you have many people who are paid to deal with these issues. So the time it sucks out of people is, I, whenever I think about just how much time has been lost over this, you know, <laughs> how many people's daytime job revolves around, you know, copyright law yeah. or how many people, every streamer and YouTuber like it, copyright strike. I mean, my own job revolves around copyright law and, you know, in an ideal world, my job wouldn't exist kind of the way it does, you know? Yeah. Just to think about how much productivity is lost because we decided that this would be the structure where we would promote creative works seems counterproductive. And I guess the interesting thing to think about is if we gave up that control, would it be worth, I mean, I guess we're saying it's worth it. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, certainly in the case of the Bible, like for example, Christians thinking about the KJV, like I said, it's technically copyrighted, but in the US, practically it's not. I've talked to people in charge of Bible versions and asked them to, to use a freer license. And a lot of them have said no, primarily because they don't want someone to tamper with the text. But if you think about the King James Version, Joseph Smith has his own version of the King James Version, Thomas Jefferson had his own version where he, you know, erased the miracles of Jesus and things like that. Like you have all these versions that a lot of Christians wouldn't be happy with, but at the same time, I think far more good has been done by KJV being practically freely available. Right. Um, I guess it's similar to like free speech discussions, a little bit different, but kind of this fundamentalism about not allowing your kids to see things like Harry Potter is about witches. So it's like for the devil, that kind of thing. In this case, it's like, allowing this to be free for a possibility of someone corrupting it and then that might influence people and then we need to make sure that it's controlled and i guess it's like the control itself is the problem right of like not letting it go out there there's a possibility of it failing and people doing whatever they want right yeah there are two ways of thinking about one is the pragmatism what's the the better end and you know like you and i are saying yeah i think the better end is if these things are free and then secondly there's the more fundamental rights aspect of it. You know, does the copyright holder have a true, you know, absolute right, even outside of the construct of the government to control their work? I would say no, you know, given some of the reasoning in that Thomas Jefferson quote, what I was talking mm -hmm. about, natural law, that God has set up things that are real, inalienable rights. And the right is not the copyright holders as though this were physical property. Right. The right is anyone to whom the the idea comes because once mm. it has entered their head it is now their idea as well yeah no that makes sense it feels very intuitive in the internet age where it's like it's already so open like websites you can look at the source code you can copy it the remixing of anything like a video or like on tiktok or music and then also like fan fiction right they're technically extending something or they rewrite it the death of the author like does it even matter who wrote it if we want to claim that it's ours now. I feel like that kind of sentiment is already in the air. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, like I said earlier, I think I do think attribution is important, but <laughs> but yeah, there doesn't seem to be an, enough to be gained by insisting on control. And beyond that, I don't think that it is actually the right of the creator to insist on such control. 
Yeah, I guess when people are pretending to be that author, that's different from just forking it. <laughs> yeah, that's a problem. Going back to Bible translations, because you brought up like Jefferson had a Bible. What do you think of like personal Bibles or even encouraging people to kind of, I don't know, not change it or anything, but like kind of change it in a way that makes sense to them. And then there's also this whole thing about like machine learning and like, what if you had a Bible that was like for you? Before I answer that question, it's probably worth saying that there are a few free versions that exist. So there's the ASV, the American Standard Version, you know, that's from the early 1900s. And then there's also the web version, W-E-B. So that's more recent. And for those who don't know, there's probably two main kinds of Bible translations, one that's based on Byzantine texts and one that's based on other other texts. So anyway, the web is based on Byzantine texts and the ASV is based on other kind of critical editions. So anyway, yeah, it's interesting that you asked that question because I've been trying to update the ASV myself. I've been doing this for like eight years. Wow. <laughs> I mean, very slowly, you know, like a few... Uh, words here and there, but changing all of these and those, that kind of stuff. You know, I study a lot of commentaries as a pastor. Whenever I discover a translation issue or whatever, you know, I do try to, if I think it should be different, I update that too. I'm not an expert, so I don't know if, I'm not sure in what capacity I ever want to share this. But yeah, I think for a student of the Bible who understands some translation issues, it would be worth, you know, having your own kind of personal edition where you've kept notes and quote unquote altered some things. Now, you know, the Bible says a lot about changing its words. So if it's doing it to go not just beyond the intention of the translators, but beyond the t- intention of the original author, I don't think you're doing anyone a service, but, <laughs> but yeah, I do think there are some legitimate reasons to have your own kind of personal translation. Maybe there's a word and you want to use the original Greek or something instead, because that might help sure. you understand it better. Yeah. Like every time you have the word love to actually insert like agape and phileo or whatever, people tend to be interested in that kind of thing. Which version of love is this? That would be interesting. Otherwise, you would have to learn how to use or even know that it exists, the whole Strong's Concordance, those kinds of things. Right. It's like the average person have no idea, but it's like, what if you made it simpler? It, it's not that like everything has to have a synonym, but it's kind of cool. This is kind of a more deeper word than English provides. And it maybe help you to learn Greek or some other language so you can appreciate better. Right. Yeah. But then, it, and then it's worth pointing out, but with most modern versions, you would not be able to do that and then publish it. So that's worth thinking about. Maybe we can end with like, what's a takeaway for someone that might not be a Christian? Sure. So that's a very good question. What's a takeaway for someone who's not Christian, but finds this interesting. So I have been sensitive about talking about this because in a way it's kind of like exposing a lot of the dirty laundry of the current state of Christianity. Yeah. I mean, I want to be transparent at the same time. I don't want to, I mean, that's not my main agenda is to draw attention to like the messes that we have in the church at the moment. But yeah, I would say that, you know, forgive us for, (laughs) for where we've gone wrong. And when Mm -hmm. someone's tried to charge you for offering you the gospel, and that's obviously not what Jesus promoted or Paul or any of the apostles. And I hope that as you know, this is adopted, the Bible's more freely available and that people have more access to it. And yeah, if someone's listening to this and not a believer, of course, the, the main thing I would want them to think about is just to consider the words of the New Testament that Jesus Christ was offered as a, as a sacrifice to pay for the sins of the world. I think pointing out the problems, especially in this case, I guess it helps explain what it's all about in the first place. I, I guess there's a more serious tie into the gospel. So if I can just read like part of the conclusion of the book, the prophet Isaiah describes salvation as water that is offered without money and without price. 
Isaiah 55, 1. In the Gospels, Jesus explains that he is the source of that living water, John 7, 37. On the final pages of scripture, John records the repeated assertion that the Lord offers this water freely, Revelation 21, 6, 22, 17. As we consider the relationship between money and ministry, there's nothing less at stake than the proper advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, the gospel, it's offered freely, and that's kind of what makes it distinctive from what's offered in many religions of the world, right? By your own effort, you uh, earn righteousness. But Christianity is unique in that what it offers is entirely free, and that needs to be reflected in how the gospel is promoted. If Christ is offering it freely, then <laughs> you know his servant that's a messenger should not be then charging a premium on it. Right. Pointing out that that's been lost, it is promoting the pole point in the first place. Yeah, so this is not just one arbitrary thing about how ministry is done, but it, it is reflective of the gospel itself, that valuable thing that has been offered without charge. Thanks for this conversation. I've given a talk about like why I do open source and I bring up the same verse about freely given, freely received. So it's like kind of cool to see this applied to the faith. Yeah, well, thank you, Henry. I've appreciated it.